0: That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com.
1: The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100 percent sure yet what to write.
2: Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, deputy opinion editor.
1: And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu.
0: Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio, and how the tech are you? You know, in a tech news episode a few weeks ago, I mentioned that the company Onkyo, which created an audio equipment brand that was well-known and respected in the AV world, was going out of business. I also mentioned that the brand would actually live on because other companies had sort of swooped in to purchase those assets before the demise of Onkyo, and it appears that the plan is to continue producing equipment using those assets that will presumably carry the Ankio brand names forward. Then I asked if y'all wanted me to follow up on that and do an episode on it, and y'all said yes. At least five of you did. So here we go. That's, that's a bar that I am happy to hit. Now, before I really jump into things, let me give a few caveats up front in this episode. First, there actually are not a ton of great resources that chronicle the history and evolution of Ankyo. So there are going to be some gaps in this episode. And we should probably consider any dates I talk about uh, beyond like really formative ones like the founding of the company to be more or less approximate. Also, many of the resources I uncovered were obviously originally written in a language other than English, and the translations vary from pretty good to this is unintentionally disturbing. For example, one source I came across described a moment in an Ankyo commercial that totally gave me the creeps. And I'm going to go ahead and read what it said, because why should I be the only one to suffer? This is literally how it read, quote, Yoko Minamino, an idol, speaks in a moist voice. I want you to like it slowly. This is a scene from the commercial of Radian, a popular mini-component system of Onkyo in 1986. End quote. Yeah, have fun getting that out of your head, because it's been haunting me for days. Anyway... My point is that the combination of scant sources and questionable translations, also some sources contradicting facts that other quote unquote facts that other sources are are listing. All of this means that we could be jumping around a little bit and taking everything with a grain of salt uh, beyond certain things that are pretty certain. I usually would default to the company's... Uh, own history sources over everything else, thinking, well, that's going to be the most reliable. But there's at least one instance where I feel like that was also incorrect, and we'll get to that. All right, back to Onkyo. As we'll see, the story of Onkyo includes more than one moment where the entire brand could have disappeared, and that only thanks to some other companies was Onkyo able to keep going. Sadly, its luck was bound to run out at some point, and that seems to be what has happened now. But our story begins back in the early 1900s, and in fact involves not just Onkyo's founder, who is Takeshi Godai, but another really important person in Japanese tech and business, Konosuke Matsushita, the founder of the company that would ultimately become known as Panasonic. Konosuke Matsushita became childhood friends with Takeshi Godai after taking a job at the Godai Bicycle Company. Matsushita would later move to Osaka, take a job at the Osaka Electric Light Company, work his way up quickly in that business, and in 1917, Matsushita would leave to found his own electronics company, initially focusing on stuff like bicycle lamps and light sockets. This is the company that would ultimately become Panasonic. And it would take a few years for that company to find stability, but after that, it grew pretty quickly, and Matsushita would eventually bring over his childhood buddy Takeshi Godai to oversee a manufacturing facility dedicated to making speakers, loudspeakers. After World War II, Matsushita's company was actually in danger of being split up by the occupying forces, primarily the United States and Japan. Uh, that was something that was happening to a lot of Japanese companies because Japanese companies had sort of a dynastic structure. Uh, there was a very much a, a kind of inherited structure for companies where they would belong to a family or maybe a small group of families. And um, the concern by the occupying forces was that this was concentrating power in a way that was uh, harmful. Uh, at least to United States' interests. So around that same time, Matsushita's company spun off its audio production operations, which gave Takeshi the opportunity to make his own decision to found a company of his very own. So he did. And he called it Osaka Denki Onkyo KK. Onkyo means sound acoustics. And Takeshi's dream was to create a company that could produce higher quality dynamic speakers than what was typically available on the market in Japan. And he founded that company in April of 1946. The next month, Ankyo introduced its very first product, but this was not a loudspeaker. Uh, Instead, it was a cartridge pickup for record players. This is the part of the record player that has the stylus or needle inside of it, That needle will vibrate as it moves through the grooves of a record. So the needle kind of navigates this canal in the form of this groove, and the variations in that canal cause vibrations through the needle. Uh, And a very small, very sensitive electromagnet in the cartridge would convert the vibrations into a weak electric signal. Uh, And then when amplified, that electric signal would be able to drive speakers that could play back the recorded sound represented by those grooves in the record. Super cool technology. It's been around for more than 100 years. Now, according to one source, which was a thorough source, but also impossible for me to verify because I could not find any corroborating evidence. So again, take this with a grain of salt. This original product sold for 300 yen in 1946. If that is indeed true, it would have been incredibly expensive. But again, the source I found was one that doesn't even exist online anymore. I actually had to use archive.org to even get a copy of it. Like I, I found a link to the source in a forum about Onkyo. I followed the link and got a 404 error. So I went to archive and actually found a snapshot of the, uh, the link from 2012 and in order to actually read this. And again, like I said, I couldn't find any corroborating evidence. So we're just kind of going to assume that the product was expensive. It would have made sense. You know, electronics, typically when they first debut in a market, tend to be very, very expensive. They're expensive to make. And so the manufacturer passes that on to the customer. And thanks to, you know, bleeding edge early adopters who have a lot of disposable cash, then eventually the price comes down because manufacturing improves and you start producing at scale. Well, despite the cost, at least according to this one source, the product sold well enough for Takeshe to mark those profits toward developing a loudspeaker research and development division, as well as set money aside to pay for the construction of a factory. That part is absolutely true because by January 1948, two years after the company had been founded, the company had built its factory. Now, one of the first things that that factory began to produce were speaker cones, which means we should probably take a quick moment to explain what speaker cones are and what they are for. So briefly, a loudspeaker, or just speaker for short, takes an incoming electric signal, feeds that to an electromagnetic setup, and that in turn drives a diaphragm or cone to move inward and outward, which creates fluctuations in air pressure that we perceive as sound. So inside a speaker, you typically have a permanent magnet that's attached to the chassis of the speaker itself. And suspended in the speaker is a coil of conductive wire. And as electricity moves through the coil, it creates a magnetic field. The magnetic field in the coil interacts with the magnetic field of the permanent magnet. And depending on the direction of the current, because we are working with alternating current here, the magnetic fields either repel one another, which forces the coil outward from the speaker, or they attract one another, which pulls the coil inward toward the speaker or the back of the speaker, I guess. Well, that coil in turn is attached to a cone or diaphragm. Typically, there's a connector. Sometimes it's a direct connection, but usually there's a a component that serves to connect the coil to the cone. And the cone is secured uh, to the speaker at the wide end. So if you think of a megaphone, the the part where the sound comes out (laughs) is the bit where it would attach to the chassis. And it's the narrow end of the cone that attaches to the coil. So the movements of the coil push and pull on this diaphragm. The stiffness... Of the material of that diaphragm as well as the size of the diaphragm will affect the quality of sound that comes out of it. Larger diaphragms can be much louder than smaller ones and generate lower frequencies of sound as well. Your basic subwoofer has a larger diaphragm than, say, a tweeter speaker would. And there's a real art and science to creating the right cone shape and the right stiffness for speakers. Typically, speakers have a range of frequencies and volumes that they're very good at reproducing. But beyond that range, if you try to go either higher frequency or lower frequency, or turn up the volume more than the speaker can handle, things start to get ugly. And a lot of those factors depend upon the cone's material and shape. Onkyo, like other companies in the loudspeaker business back in the early days, was producing paper cones. Uh, Paper, in this case, includes cones that have materials like wool or even synthetic fibers interwoven into them. So it's not, you know, it's not like printer paper or notebook paper or anything like that. It is a, a type of paper, just as currency tends to be a special type of paper that has various fibers interwoven into it. So are speaker cones. And soon the company had its first real hit. One early speaker released by Ankyo was the ED-100. It had a driver measuring 25 centimeters or about 10 inches across, and it was also expensive, 50% more expensive than its nearest competitor, according to Ankyo itself. And yet, despite that expense, it sold well as reviewers praised it for the sound replication capabilities that it had. And from what I can tell, This was just the speaker itself, like just the the actual speaker part, not the cabinet that would house the speaker. Now, I could be wrong about that. Maybe they produced an entire cabinet for this. uh, But to me, it sounds like it was more of an OEM product. So OEM stands for original equipment manufacturer. It's a common term in business. These are the companies that make components that other companies use to put into their own products. So a lot of those types of companies have names that you probably aren't that familiar with because we are not the customers for OEMs, right? We don't go out and buy OEM products for the most part. I mean, there are places that will sell them, sell the OEM components where you can do things like do a repair or something to a product. But typically... We're more familiar with the consumer companies, like the consumer brand companies, um, not the OEMs. But other companies are the customers for those OEMs. Uh, If you think of it, uh, Foxconn, which is the company that Apple relies on for a lot of the assembly, can kind of fall into this business to business category. So anyway, all of that. Would have been an irrelevant tangent if, in fact, the ED100 was a full cabinet speaker product, but all the photos I saw of it have been just for the speaker part itself, as if you had taken a cabinet apart and pulled the speaker part out and just had that. That's what all the pictures show. So my guess is that's exactly what it was when Ankyo was selling them and some other company would do things like create the cabinets or chassis that would hold this loudspeaker. Now, in 1950, Ankio filed for a patent on non-pressed cone drive unit technology. All right. This brings us up to pressed versus non-pressed. That refers to the process of making speaker cones. Pressed cones typically have a more uniform density and stiffness, but they also tend to have a smaller surface area than non-pressed cones. So non-pressed cones, while not being quite as consistent and sometimes having some quality issues, are able to move more air and they can be louder than a similarly sized pressed cone. At least that's what I've come to understand on the matter. I started going down the rabbit hole of this and quickly discovered that speaker cone technology can be treated with a complexity and reverence I would normally associate with quantum physics. Well, we've got a lot more to say about Onkyo. Before we get any further, let's take a quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do.
3: LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash iHeart. That's LifeLock.com slash iHeart to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here.
0: All right. My understanding about pressed versus non-pressed cones, really non-pressed cones... Mostly we can just say tend to be more power efficient and can produce louder sounds than similar sized pressed cones, but they also vary in quality and therefore uh, you cannot be absolutely certain that you're going to get the absolute best from a non-pressed cone. 1950, this was also when Onkyo introduced the Onkyo OP670, which was a high fidelity audio system complete with four speed turntable. And if you're like a lot of folks, you might be saying, wait, a a turntable with four speeds? I think most people who have played with turntables, they know that there are two standard speeds that you pretty much find on every single turntable slash record player that's out there. There's 45 RPM. RPM, of course, stands for revolutions per minute, meaning the turntable will turn 45 times every minute. This is usually reserved for seven inch records. Typically they are singles, which means, you know, you have like a single song per side of the disc of the record. And then you have 33 RPM or really 33 and a third. And this is what we typically use for long play albums or LPs, the the larger records, right? Most people are familiar with that. Now, beyond that, there are some folks who are probably aware that older turntables in particular often had a 78 RPM setting. So it would turn 78 times in a minute. Uh, That has dated back to some of the earliest records. You don't typically find 78 RPM records these days. I'm not saying no one's making them because I'm sure someone out there is, But, but these were the early, early records. Uh, However, did you know, and some of you probably do, but I doubt everyone does, that a few systems also included a fourth speed, which was all the way down to 16 RPM. Technically, it was actually 16 and two thirds RPM, half the speed of 33 and one third. If you're wondering why these odd speeds are hitting these, these seemingly arbitrary numbers, it actually has to do with the gear ratios that were used in turntables um, because it, it's the, it's the ratio of these gears that determine what speeds you can have something turned to based upon the speed that the motor works at. And it, it's really fascinating, but the reason for these, these numbers uh, really has to do with the capability of an electric motor to turn at a very specific speed. And thus by using gears, you can, uh, gear up or gear down that speed, right? So that's that's why there are all these weird ratios of 33 and a third or 16 and two thirds or 78. Now, when I was a kid, I was convinced that the purpose of these different speeds on turntables was really so that you could turn up any LP or 33 RPM album into a chipmunks album. Because if you play a 33 RPM record at 45 RPM speeds, everything, you know, speeds up and all the sounds get pitched up. So it is hilarious if you're, you know, nine, or in my case, 46. Conversely, if you play a 45 RPM record at 33 RPM, well, then everything slows down and pitches down. And I can tell you that the effect is often disturbing. Um, I remember in college... Where my roommate made an entire cassette tape, where he he recorded songs played on albums but at the wrong speed because we had a turntable in our dorm room and a cassette deck with it too, and so one day he just spent he spent the whole day converting 33 rpm songs to 45 and vice versa, and listening to that 45 rpm recording of the BGS staying alive played at 33 rpm was really the stuff of Nightmares. I'm amazed that a horror movie hasn't done that because it did sound like it was coming from, you know, like a, a psychological thriller or something. Yeah, give it a try if you want. Um, it's it's, it's a juvenile way to amuse yourself. Uh, I highly recommend it. Anyway, uh, the whole 33 and a third versus RPM story is rooted in different music labels attempting to set the standard and then eventually meshing together so that Uh, One format, the 45, would essentially be associated with singles, and the other, the 33 RPM, would be associated with long play albums. But that speed really does impact other stuff. So naturally, the faster the RPM, then the faster the turntable's stylus makes its way through the groove of a record, right? I mean, it's turning faster, so the journey takes less time. That also means that if you have two albums that are the exact same diameter, but one is a 33 RPM and the other is a 78 RPM, well, the 78 RPM record is going to play through much, much faster, assuming you're using the proper playback speed for each record, of course. The record spins faster, the stylus gets to the end faster, which makes sense. Well, another thing that the faster speed tends to do is affect fidelity. Slowing the speed down can impact the quality of the playback sound. If you go slower than normal, then it's going to start to sound worse. Uh, Slower speeds produce lower quality audio is one way to think about it. So that meant that albums designed to be played at 16 RPM had limitations on sound quality. For that reason, most, but not all, of 16 RPM records were spoken word pieces, where the audio quality wasn't as big of a deal. And I know that was a tangent, but this is tech stuff, and that's what I do. If I didn't describe technology, then I wouldn't really be doing the show, right? So anyway, if you weren't familiar with four-speed stereos, now you know. They could play albums at 16, 33, 45, and 78 RPM. I'm sure some of you out there have had experience with these. I don't think I've ever seen a four-speed. I have seen three speeds, but I don't think I ever, at least I I definitely never owned a four-speed turntable. Now, Ankyo was already off to a fast start. By 1952, just four years after opening its first factory, it was time to move into bigger digs. The company expanded both its factory space and its office space. The next year, Ankyo re-released the ED-100 loudspeaker, but this time they changed out the cone material. The loudspeaker had the non-pressed cone design in the new version. You know, the original ED-100 was a pressed cone one. But now Onkyo had filed for its patent for non-pressed cone technology and was able to incorporate that into the ED-100. And the improvement in sound quality garnered more positive reviews from critics. So Onkyo's reputation in the audio world in Japan was on the rise. Now, this next bit I have to take issue with. According to Onkyo's own website... The company introduced a transistor radio in 1953 called the OS-55, complete with a speaker cone measuring 20 centimeters across, which was a much larger speaker cone than what you would typically find in transistor radios at the time. However, the issue I take isn't with the speaker size. That's fine. It's with the year, 1953. See, the general agreement is that the first commercially manufactured transistor radio was the Regency TR-1. That didn't hit store shelves until the end of 1954. And I cannot find any corroborating evidence that suggests the OS-55 debuted in 1953. In fact, All other sources say that it came out in 1955. Keep in mind, Ankyo's own source is the one that says 1953, but everyone else says no, it was 1955. Honestly, 1955 makes more sense. It would fall in line with the fact that the Regency TR1 is widely considered to be the first transistor radio that was commercially produced. And also, it would make the OS55 name make sense, right? If the 55 was, in fact, a reference to the year in which it came out, 1955. And then you wouldn't contradict the earlier fact about the Regency TR-1. So my guess is that the Ankyo official website has an error on it in this case. Uh, Either that or everyone has been wrong about what the first transistor radio actually was. Anyway, transistors are super neat because they allowed for a miniaturization. And I've talked a ton about that in past episodes. So the too-long-didn't-listen version is that older radios relied on vacuum tubes to act as diodes and to serve as amplifiers. A diode is an electric component, or electronic component, I should say, that allows a current to flow in one direction, but not to flow in the reverse direction. And uh, vacuum tubes were used for that and they were used for amplifying a signal that is taking a weak signal and then boosting that up to a stronger signal. Vacuum tubes are large and they're also delicate and they also generate a lot of heat. They're kind of like light bulbs. Solid state transistors are much smaller than vacuum tubes and they allowed manufacturers to make stuff like radio sets that were much smaller and lighter than older versions. If you've ever seen like a a really old radio set, you know it's a piece of furniture. It's a big, big thing. Typically, it would have its own set of legs, kind of like a table, and it would be a standalone piece. Transistors allowed people to make much smaller radios, eventually pocket-sized radios. And uh, uh, so it was a, a, a truly important development in electronics. It is what allowed us to create miniaturized components and have things that didn't take up an entire section of the floor, like televisions and radios and later on computers. Now, I'm not going to go through every product released with the company, at least not in any detail, but the following years saw Ankyo expand into speaker chassis manufacturing and they also created a record player called the Onkyo HP-10. From what I understand, this is a record player that has its own dedicated speaker. So uh, you just, you know, to put a record on it, you plug it in, you, you could play the music straight from that. It wasn't uh, a component, in other words. It was its own standalone product. The company also got involved in TV set manufacturing around this time. Uh, also, in 1955, the company settled on a logo just shy of a decade of the company's founding. I couldn't find any other information suggesting that they had created a logo before 1955, which is funny. Uh, So from 1946 to 1955, apparently they didn't have an official logo type. Only a couple of years later, the company would actually refine that logo type to, quote, suit the rapidly changing style of the times, end quote. And yeah, this does make sense. Like the 50s and 60s, Things were changing very quickly, especially in the world of audio equipment. And you didn't want to get associated with being left behind, right? You didn't. Your company did not want to have this stigma of being stuck in the past because technology was evolving so quickly that in order to remain relevant, you needed to change things up. And so it makes sense that even just a couple of years after they first settled on the logotype, they would change it. In 1957, the Toshiba Corporation entered into an accepted capital participation with Ankyo. So you might say, well, what the heck does an accepted capital participation mean? Well, further documentation reveals that Toshiba bought up a lot of shares of Ankyo. a ton of them, like 69% of the ownership of Ankyo went to the Toshiba Group, with the bulk of the remainder left over Going to Ankyo's founder, Takeshe Godai, um, and some of it going to some other executives and some members of Godai's family. See, while Ankyo was introducing new products and generally receiving a positive reception for them, the cost of doing business was so high that the revenue coming in wasn't keeping up. So in other words, like, yeah, they had a great reputation in the market, but the market wasn't big enough to support the expansion that ankio was doing. And so it was costing them more to, to do business than they were making in revenue. So despite having huge success in the market, Ankio was on the verge of bankruptcy. And there was a very real possibility that Takeshi would have to liquidate the company and go out of business. So the Toshiba group represented a lifeline for Onkyo. And Toshiba saw the value of incorporating Onkyo's reputation for high-quality audio components into Toshiba products. Plus, Onkyo was already serving as an OEM for Toshiba for television sets. Uh, Onkyo was manufacturing TV sets that would later be sold under the Toshiba brand. So there was a chance that if you went out and bought a Toshiba-branded television, the actual manufacturer of that TV was Onkyo. Also, Onkyo was making its own TV sets with the Onkyo brand. So there were both brands on the market in Japan at the same time. Now, Toshiba is yet another company that I need to do a full episode on in the future, but I'm going to resist the urge to do it right now because you're already going to have to put up a lot from me today Uh, Anyway, Ankyo's relationship with Toshiba would end up becoming a bit of an albatross 30 years later. That, my friends, is foreshadowing. And with that, we're going to take another quick break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. We're back. Now, getting back to Onkyo's history. The company kept introducing new products, mostly in the audio space. Uh, Much of the work was in loudspeakers, including bookshelf-type speakers, which were a fairly new thing at that point. Now they are sort of a go-to speaker style. You can spend thousands and thousands of dollars getting high-end bookshelf-style speakers. I know because I've looked at them. Didn't buy any. But I looked at them and then ultimately said, you know what, I don't think I even have a space that would accommodate the way these speakers would need to be set up so that I could get the benefit from that. And so I'd be spending a lot of money on high end stuff that I wouldn't be able to use properly. And I talked myself out of it. I'm proud of myself for that. Uh, however, Ankyo also began to produce full audio systems. They had done a couple of those in the past, but they really got into it. Uh, in the late 50s and uh, early 60s. That included things like the Onkyo ST400DL stereophonic system in 1963 and a standalone turntable component in 1966 called the ST55. The company even branched into making radio transceivers, um, essentially walkie-talkie style radios. And in 63, Onkyo manufactured a cardiograph, which is an actual medical instrument. So they were really diversifying here. They weren't just making high-end audio equipment. They were making stuff that was related to audio still, but had uses apart from rocking out with the latest record. Now, this was in the beginning of the real high-fidelity craze where you started seeing audiophiles who would seek out specific components in an effort to put together their ultimate audio system. So instead of buying an all-in-one stereo system, they were interested in buying the individual pieces and connecting them together to create what they felt was the perfect sound system. Uh, Now, I should add that Ankyo had been making components since the late 1950s, but it was really in the 60s where we saw the craze really take off. The goal was always to create the best listening experience, but that's a subjective thing. So I'm just here to tell you there is no real right answer for which system or which uh, collection of pieces is the best. It depends on so many different factors like the kind of music you listen to because some components are really good at representing or replicating certain frequencies and volumes that are best for uh, one genre of music while others are better for a different genre. Plus, listening is a, a psychoacoustic phenomenon in, in that our brains are interpreting the sound. So that means there is a filter in our gray matter that affects how we experience sound. And no two people are exactly the same. So the perfect system for person A is not necessarily going to be the perfect system for person B. You can always hook up components to very sensitive equipment and say, hey, the number on this piece of equipment is better than the number on that piece of equipment. And that might be correct, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the experience of listening to the different components is going to make a huge difference. So I say that because audiophiles get obsessive about the mathematical association of all the different components uh, from everything from the electrical side to the actual acoustic side. And uh, I get a little squirrely when I go into those discussions because I feel like people obsess over things that are largely ephemeral, that that we don't necessarily, they don't necessarily translate into how we experience the actual output. So that's a long way of me saying it's okay <laughs> If you go out there to build an audio system and you're not going with what someone else says is the absolute best of the best, because it really depends on how you perceive it. It's the system that makes you happy. That's the one that ends up being the best, not the system that arbitrarily hits certain, you know, electronic metrics necessarily. That can have an effect, but you get what I'm saying. All right, so Onkyo's standalone turntable means that you would actually need to connect this turntable to other components, like an amplifier, for example, to boost the signal, and then speakers to play back the sound. And Ankyo's standalone record player, this st 55 would be part of the initial audiophile craze in Japan. Um, at this point, ankio is still very much a Japanese focused company. Uh, They had not really started massive exports to other parts of the world yet. So the ST55 was valued for its performance, as well as its simplified, no frills aesthetic. The company continued producing stereo systems as well, adding in new features and refining designs with every passing year. No big shock there. Uh, And it got into making headphones in 1970. Most of Onkyo's fame came from its full stereo systems and the individual audio components, such as loudspeakers and receivers, turntables, amplifiers, and such. In 1971, the company changed its name from Osaka Onkyo KK to simply Onkyo Corporation. Then we get up to 1972. A few things happened that year, that were really important for one thing onkyo established the onkyo germany facility which primarily focused on research and development and acoustics and also served as a base of operations for marketing and distributing onkyo products to europe so the japanese facilities would export products to germany which would then be able to distribute those to retailers in the europe region The company also introduced loudspeakers that used titanium instead of paper for the speaker diaphragm, and Onkyo got out of the television set business in around 1972. This will also be important when we come back to Toshiba, more foreshadowing. At that stage, Onkyo was ready to focus completely on producing just audio equipment. Its dependence on Toshiba had declined, although Toshiba still owned nearly 70% of Onkyo. So between 1957 and 72, Ankyo was kind of acting like a subsidiary to Toshiba. But really, starting in 1972, Ankyo was operating as an independent company. Yes, Toshiba had ownership interest in Ankyo, but was not directing the company. Uh, So this would be a key argument that Ankyo would make in 1987. Yet more foreshadowing. 1972 was also when Onkyo introduced the Integra 931 power amplifier. So Integra is another brand name under Onkyo. People have probably heard of Integra products that came from Onkyo. Uh, I also recommend that you Google image the Integra 931 power amplifier because it looks unlike anything else that was on the market at that time. Onkyo described it as having a steam locomotive-like design, and I can see that. Ankyo continued to expand and opened up manufacturing facilities in Korea. So it started to build uh, out its manufacturing capabilities. And in 1973, the company debuted the Intech 405 stereo system, which supported quadraphonic sound. I've talked a bit about quadraphonics before. Uh, Quadraphonics are essentially a surround sound system that used for or uses four channels. And typically, the way you would set up a quadraphonic listening area is you would have speakers at your front left, your front right, your back left, and your back right, and you would be in the middle. And each of those speakers would play back a distinct channel of audio. There were several different quadraphonic formats, which probably impeded widespread adoption of quadraphonic sound because people were using different ways of producing quadraphonic sounds, and they weren't all cross compatible. So I'll have to do a full episode on quadraphonics in the future. And maybe I'll even try to record it in a style that mimics quadraphonic sound. If I'm being cheeky, we'll see. In 1975, Ankyo established the Ankyo USA Corporation. That subsidiary would serve as a foothold for Ankyo sales in North and South America. So again, like the German version, the USA version would import products from Japan and then distribute those to U.S. stores and U.S. retailers, uh, at least for several decades. Now, in 1977, Onkyo once again refreshed its logo. The company also introduced the Scepter speaker system, which I thought was super cool. Uh, This was really for the serious audiophile. So the company offered customers the chance to customize their speakers. And I'm talking like crazy levels of customization. According to Ankyo, there were 173 different combinations possible. If you had your own idea of what combination you wanted of speaker drivers, enclosure setups, and more, then you could do that through the Scepter speaker system. Ankyo even provided a helpful handbook to guide those who weren't already obsessively detailed in their approach. Speeding onward, in 1981, Ankio introduced the first consumer high-speed dual dubbing cassette deck, meaning it had two uh, cassette decks and you could put a you know a, a tape that had stuff on it in one, a blank tape in the other, and very quickly dub and, and copy tape one to tape 2. I'm guessing that that probably sent the music industry into a bit of a tizzy because the introduction of any technology that makes it remotely easier to copy media tends to put music studios on tilt. In 1985, Ankyo offered a CD player called the C700 in some markets. So 85 is still pretty early for CD players. Uh, It was also called the DX700 in other markets. It featured optical fiber connections between the digital components and the digital to analog converter. Uh, The sales pitch for that was that it would cut down on signal degradation between going from digital to analog. You have to go to analog in order to power analog speakers. So the idea here was that, oh, we're going to make this pathway as clean as possible so that you get the full benefit of the digital recording uh, uh, process. Now we're up to 1987, so we could finally find out what all that foreshadowing was about. In the summer of 1987, the U.S. government was proposing a ban on the sale of all Toshiba products in the United States. Why? Well, have you seen a little movie called The Hunt for Red October? or, uh, you know, read the book that the movie was based off of? See, in the film, uh, a Russian submarine commander wishes to defect to the United States. This was back in the Soviet Union days, mind you. And the commander is aboard a prototype Russian submarine with a propulsion system that can operate in near silence, which makes the submarine very difficult to detect. Well, the U.S. government was miffed at Toshiba's subsidiary, the Toshiba Machine Company, for essentially supplying technology to the Soviet Union that would allow for the near-silent operation of submarines. So, kind of the same as the hunt for October, right? They were saying, hey, you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to supply high-tech tools to the Soviet Union. We have very strong feelings about that. So the U.S. government proposed a multi-year ban on the sale of all Toshiba products in the United States as a result. Which is pretty wild, right? Mighty was the miffage thereof. The actual sales happened in the early 1980s, so Toshiba Machine Company was responsible for that around the early to mid-80s, and then it was uncovered in the late 80s. And that was in violation of this policy the United States had, and that represented a pretty tough choice for the U.S. government. So on the one hand... The Soviet Union was the hated rival of the United States. The two countries had been in a Cold War for decades. On the other hand, this was Ronald Reagan's America. And the general philosophy of Ronald Reagan was that government should stay the heck out of the way of business. So you're in a real quandary, right? Like, what do you do? (laughs) Um, you, You hate the Soviet Union, but you've also been saying, hey, government should not get in the way of business. And there's a lot more to this story, and maybe one day, if I do a Toshiba episode, I'll certainly go into more detail about all of that. But the part that concerns us is that because Toshiba still maintained a majority stake in Ankyo, like it still had that massive amount of ownership of Ankyo stock, that put Ankio's business in jeopardy as well, because the, to the US government, Ankio looked like a Toshiba subsidiary, so it would also get covered by this ban. Ankio hired lawyers who filed a message with the US government, and those lawyers argued that Ankio was, in all ways that mattered, an independent company. Yeah. Toshiba maintained a stake in Ankyo, but Ankyo no longer made televisions for Toshiba. It had stopped doing that in the 70s. And Ankyo's products were actually competing against Toshiba products that were on the market. So Ankyo was arguing for the survival of its business and pleading with the US government not to lump it in with Toshiba's own operations. Ankyo was able to mitigate the impact of the political scandal on its own business, so it was able to remain afloat. In 1990, Ankyo Got a new president. Takeshi Godai had led the company from 1946 to 1990. Now, I'm not certain if he stepped down, if he retired, if he passed away. I couldn't find any definitive information on that. But the new president was Tsunio Otso, who would hold that position until 1993. So only from 1990 to 1993. At that point, Naoto Atsuki would take over, and he would actually stay on until 2009, so 93 to 2009. And then Munanori Atsuki took on the reins. And I wanted to get all of that out of the way to illustrate how one man, Takeshi Godai, led Ankyo for almost 45 years, and then the next three leaders in charge were leading it for the next 30 years, and some for very few, like four years for the first one. Now, we have a few more things we got to cover with Onkyo before we wrap things up. In 2012, Onkyo got another capital partner. This time it was Gibson Guitar Corporation. Now, back in 2018, I did some episodes about Gibson guitars. In the 1980s, Gibson was in danger of going out of business itself. But then some entrepreneurs bought the company reportedly for like five million dollars. And Gibson began to climb out of the hole it had found itself in and in the process began to acquire other companies. So the thought was that diversification was a great idea. It would help Gibson remain relevant, even as tastes were changing in the music industry and people were kind of migrating away from guitar-driven music at that point. Ankyo was one of the investments that Gibson made around this time. Well, that would end up being a bad move. And I'll explain why in just a moment. But first, let's take one last break. Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. All right, before the break, I said that Gibson would make an investment into Ankio and that would end up being a, a, a bad move. What did I mean by that? Well, Gibson, for many reasons, was again finding itself in financial trouble a few years further in the line. So in 2018, the historic guitar company, which had been in operation for more than a century, had to declare bankruptcy. Uh, Gibson would refocus on making musical instruments once it emerged from bankruptcy, and it had to liquidate other assets that had not been profitable and had been outside of that, that laser focus. And that meant that, uh, you know, Gibson would actually emerge from Chapter 11 bankruptcy in 2018, but in the process, the relationship between Gibson and Ankio was severed. So... It only lasted from 2012 to 2018, but that also meant once Gibson went away that Ankyo was finding itself in uncertain financial territory. It was really dependent upon uh, these relationships it had with Toshiba and with Gibson. So the company made the tough decision to sell off its European operations, the ones that were centered in Germany. They sold it to an Austrian company called Akipa, A-Q-I-P-A, A-Q-I-P-A uh, Akipa is best known for selling accessories for various electronics. Now, between the time that Gibson purchased a stake in Ankio and the time where Gibson went bankrupt, so 2012 to 2018, Ankio also made an investment. Ankio purchased Pioneer Home Entertainment. Pioneer is another famous name in the AV equipment industry. Pioneer would actually take a nearly 15% stake in Ankyo in return. Uh, it is customary, or at least it, it used to be. I'm not certain if it still is. But it was customary with Japanese acquisitions for each company in a merger to purchase shares in the other company. That's kind of how Japanese mergers work. It's a little different than what we typically see in other markets. So Ankyo and Pioneer plan to keep both brands alive. It weren't going to have... Pioneer just get folded into Ankyo and everything became Ankyo products. You would have both Ankyo and Pioneer on the market. Now, I'm not sure if this would be the right place to say that this was the beginning of the end for Ankyo because Ankyo was struggling with something that was affecting the entire audio equipment industry. It wasn't just unique to Ankyo's situation. That thing was more and more people were starting to migrate away from stereo systems and stereo system components as they were listening to music because the way they listened to music was changing. Digital music and streaming were completely transforming the way music works. Uh, Over time, things like smart speakers were taking the place of high-end audio systems for pretty much everyone except audiophiles. Audiophiles, obviously, they're obsessed with getting that perfect sound. So a smart speaker is not going to cut it. Like even the best smart speaker on the market can't even even remotely compare to a well-put-together music system. But for the mainstream, for the majority of people, that wasn't the case. It was convenience and accessibility and connectivity. Those were the things that were really important. And a lot of companies in the AV industry were struggling to deal with that. You saw companies rush to try and incorporate various uh, new components in their systems like Bluetooth connectivity capability. But they were they were trying to catch up. They weren't staying ahead of the changes in ways we access music. And the problem was that, you know, they couldn't really catch up at that point. There was there were already alternatives on the market, that people were gravitating toward. So companies like Ankiyo were really struggling to stay relevant. It wasn't just Ankiyo that this was affecting. A lot of AV companies were seeing massive drops in revenue. In 2019, the rug was pulled out from under Ankiyo once again. So in the spring of 2019, there was a company called Sound United, Uh, Sound United is kind of like a holding company for several notable audio brands, including Polk Audio. I would argue Polk Audio is probably the most famous of the brands that Sound United owns. And so Sound United was wanting to expand its portfolio of high-end, well-known AV brands. And it announced its intention to acquire Onkyo. And that would include brands like Pioneer and Integra. So all of these were kind of under the Ankio umbrella. Many news outlets actually just went ahead and reported that the deal was essentially done. And that was just a matter of time for the deal to close officially. But this story is one that reminds us that just because something is announced, like an acquisition or a merger is announced, doesn't necessarily mean it's going to go through. Because come October, All of that changed. Sound United abruptly pulled out of the deal. And in a statement, the Sound United company essentially said that the two parties were unable to satisfy all of the requirements that were necessary for a deal to go through and ultimately decided to terminate the proposed acquisition. The pandemic certainly made things even more complicated. It shut down showrooms and stores, so revenue took yet another hit. And in 2020, Ankio made the decision to shut down Ankio USA. If you remember, that's the division responsible for distributing Ankio products in North and South America. So instead, Ankio would outsource that job to Vox International Corporation, which is the parent company of Klipsch, K-L-I-P-S-H. It's a company famous for speakers. In 2021, Vox International and Sharp Corporation created a joint venture named Premium Audio Company, or PAC. Now, through that joint venture, Sharp and Vox acquired 75% of Onkyo's home audio video business. And that meant the brands, including Onkyo and Integra, would end up changing ownership to PAC. Uh, PAC also negotiated with the Pioneer Corporation for the right to produce AV equipment under the Pioneer brand as well. So at that point, Onkyo Equipment was actually being uh, under the, the ownership of PAC, not Onkyo itself. Then this year, 2022, Onkyo Home Entertainment Corporation, which was really the last surviving component of the company that Takeshi Godai founded back in 1946, declared bankruptcy. Now, this does not impact the Ankyo brand because, again, PAC now has ownership of that. In fact, PAC released a statement saying that at the time Ankyo went bankrupt, it was essentially performing only as a licensing company, that it was licensing the IP to PAC. And, and other than that, it really wasn't doing anything. Well, now it's not doing anything or it won't be doing anything at all because it's declared bankruptcy. And I do not expect it to emerge from bankruptcy. I, I expect it to essentially have liquidated all assets to pay off as much debt as possible. And that's it. So the Ankio brand lives on, but the company that spawned the brand is no more. So here's to you, Ankyo, and your contributions to making audio equipment that raises the performance bar. We hardly knew ye. And that's it for this extra long episode of Tech Stuff. I actually debated at one point of dividing this into two episodes, and I await to hear from my producer, Tari, about whether or not she's going to make me do that. So if you've listened to all of this in one go, Tari did not make me do that. If you have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, there are two ways that you can get in touch with me. One is you go, you download the iHeartRadio app, you navigate to the Tech Stuff podcast page of the iHeartRadio app. There's a little microphone icon on there that if you, if you tap on that, you can leave a 30-second voice message. Uh, and you could give me a suggestion for a show or comments or anything. If you want me to include the audio into an episode, just say so. Uh, I prefer opt-in. So if you say that you're cool with us using it, then I will use it. And if you don't, then I'm going to assume you would rather I not. The other way to get in touch, of course, is over on Twitter. The handle for the show is techstuffhsw. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I-can't-believe-how-simple-that-is experience. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot
3: From BBC Radio 4,
1: Britain's biggest paranormal podcast
3: is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment,